0: Insecure, a security podcast brought to you by the Centre for Global Security Challenges.
1: See it, say it, secure it. I am Marine Guéguin, a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds.
0: And I'm Dr Harry Swinhoe, an early career researcher at the University of Leeds.
1: Together, we will be discussing security in an increasingly insecure world.
0: This podcast aims at bringing together postgraduate researchers, early career researchers and more established academics to discuss their research and explore the six core themes of the Centre for Global Security Challenges, gender security, global reordering, health security, peace and conflict, terrorism and political violence, and we'll be beginning with environmental security.
1: For the first episode, we will be discussing COP26 and the future of climate research. We would like to welcome Professor Richard Beardsworth and Dr. Nicole Nisbet, who both took part in the Leeds Task Force to the COP26 in Glasgow. Richard, Nicole, welcome and thanks for joining.
0: Professor Richard Beardsworth is the head of the School of Politics and International Studies at the University of Leeds and a member of the Priestley International Centre for Climate. Professor Beardsworth's research focuses on state responsibility towards global challenges, particularly climate change, and he has published widely on these topics. He attended COP26 as co-lead of the University of Leeds COP26 Taskforce. Dr Nicole Nisbet is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Leeds. Her PhD research examined the ways in which the UK Parliament communicated with the public online, and she is currently conducting research on the relationship between new social norms and social change. Dr Nisbet attended COP26 as part of the University of Leeds COP26 task force.
1: Today we will be discussing your experiences during the COP, what you expected from the conference and how you view the outcomes of the conference. But we also want to think more deeply about COP26 and what it can tell us about the future of both climate policy and research. Nicole, Richard, again, we are very pleased to have you here with us today. Before delving into the topic of COP26, we would like to ask you a question that will remain throughout our episodes, and we wanted to ask every speaker. So is the world more secure or insecure today as a result of COP26?
2: Is the world more secure as a result of COP26 or not? I don't think there's any way of quantitatively answering that question. I think, nevertheless, there is a direction of travel which can be answered. COP26, I think, created a lot of frustration for people, but it also did meet certain expected outcomes and it met them well. I think as a result of meeting certain expectations, particularly around the way in which 1.5 could become the norm of mitigation and adaptation rather than two degrees, whether we get there as a civilization or not. That it did become the norm meant that science is at the heart of climate policy, and climate policy is going to dovetail itself with scientific understandings of where we are. And in that sense, climate denialism is now, I think, something of the past. There may well obviously be regressions, and there may be pockets, but climate denialism which I do think made certain kinds of policy possibilities and politics difficult, particularly with regard to fossil fuel and decarbonisation. I think climate denialism is something now of the past. The question now is one of what can we afford? What are the trade-offs? And the question is clearly the implementation of pledges as they become more ratcheted up in the next decade. We will, I'm sure, address later the whole question of Russian invasion of Ukraine, which does make things more insecure again. But the focus for the moment from your question is COP26.
1: Thank you. Nicole, would you like to answer that question?
3: I think I agree with a lot of what Richard uh, has said. And I think specifically at COP26, the focus was on 2030 targets, rather than so much the 2050 targets that had been kind of pushed before. I think there was a lot of general consensus that if they had any hopes of meeting those 2050 targets, then what we do in the next eight years now, up until 2030 is kind of a paramount importance. And it's about not only setting those targets and the NDCs from the different countries, but also making sure that they're accountable and that people and states and policies are actually sticking to those targets and to the pledges, especially to the global south, and in terms of climate finance that they have promised uh, that they would provide and making sure that they actually do provide those things so that we don't have certain areas of the world that are disproportionately um, affected.
1: So to continue this open discussion, what were your experiences like at COP as a member of the Leads task force. and how would you rate cop out of ten in terms of outcomes? Nicole, would you like to start?
3: Yeah, so my experience of cop was it was great. It was the first time I'd been to a cop, so it was very overwhelming in some ways. Of course, it was the first time that you'd seen a lot of people together. Post pandemic and social distancing restrictions. Of course, they were still in place, but you know, it was (laughs) very different to what we'd had two years previous. I was lucky, I was in the blue zone. The private zone, the green zone, and there was also kind of fringe events going on from the People's Coalition, which gave a really interesting kind of comparison between the types of negotiations going on, the, the sealed negotiations, if you will, in the blue zone, and the types of things that were being discussed, the more public discussions in the green zone, and then very fringe events in the People's Coalition, for example. Of course, with anything like this, there was definitely that feeling of an echo chamber, which isn't necessarily reflective of the general public's perception, I think, of the climate crisis and climate change in general. I think that's always going to be the case. But I think it was a successful COP in that there were things that were brought to the table and within the negotiations that hadn't been discussed before in such an explicit way. And I think that really was important, especially when we're putting the focus on those uh, 2030 targets rather than 2050. But of course, you know, there are always criticisms, especially with some of the large delegations that were a cop from certain fossil fuel industries and things like that. So I don't think it's ever going to be perfect, but I think that there was definitely progress in the right direction.
1: Richard? What was your experience at the COP, and would you like to rate also your experience?
2: Well, like Nicole, this is my first COP, so it was overwhelming. I was in the blue zone, so the blue zone where there are the intergovernmental meetings, because most of them dealt with to one side and, and not open to observers. Obviously, with Leeds uh, University, we went with observer status. There were the plenary sessions uh, and then there were meetings under the various themes of COP26 like transport, finance, agriculture. And it was overwhelming, probably a bit like the fringe events. Uh, There was too much to go to. There were too many people to see and listen to and network with. But at the same time, you did what you could. And it was a learning experience. I think by the end of the second week, where a lot of negotiations were obviously going on and went on until Saturday evening. One learned how to spend one's time better as it went on and more productively. So that was a very interesting experience, as Nicole said, very similar for me. I think in terms of where the experience was very important in terms of how I understood the outcomes coming out of it, to one side of the actual documents that came out, as with the the Glasgow Pact, the the final uh, negotiation outcomes, is one sensed that there were a lot of tensions, still a lot between the developed and developing worlds. China, for example, and India were very unwilling to negotiate, like, for example, the phase-out of coal. One sensed those tensions all the time. They were expressed well in the plenary sessions. Developing countries always talked about Uh, the existential threat, which they do, and they must always do each time they come to the plenary sessions. And one sense that those voices were becoming more important, even though quite a lot of NGO activists who came into the blue zone and talked with the blue zone and often talked with the leadership team under the UNFCCC, United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change. Even though they weren't in the negotiations, even if they were part, nevertheless, of the overall negotiating process, there was a sense that there were two sides, there were the states on one hand, and there were the non-state actors on the other. I'm less sure of that, actually, having been there. I thought there was a lot of conversation between the various actors. And as a result, whilst there was a great deal of disagreement on certain lack of outcome. There was a general sense more and more, certainly in the second week, that if the time and scale of this of this huge challenge is to be met by humanity as a whole and by nation states as particular agents within that whole, that people have to work together and that the pressure, therefore, from NGOs be it civil society, be it actually market civil society and therefore corporations, the pressure being put on the government delegates was actually very strong and it was taken up. So in that sense, I I did feel... That the ongoing conversation from various sides of society even if as Nicole was saying you know pledges are pledges but they have to be met There have to be clear implementation policies even if we're all there still waiting for comprehensive policies particularly as Nicole said around finance and around adaptation finance for the most vulnerable countries in the world who are meeting climate realities now even if We remain frustrated around that, and there are still large divisions within the climate community as a whole around that. I did get a sense that one of the outcomes of COP26 is this next decade is critical. Again, I say this before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As Nicole has said, the next eight to 10 years are critical to get to 2030 to 45% average uh, reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, and therefore the sense of urgency is more and more teamwork is necessary among the different actors that make up the climate community. That, for me, was a very important outcome, but a real disappointment remains that there is still a great deal of mistrust among these actors and between developing and developed world, and that mistrust can only be transcended by clear climate finance facilities being opened up and access to them being organized in such a way that they are done for the actors on the ground, not for those who are offering the finance and the aid, which often becomes a development problem.
1: Thank you. And it looks like we spoke a lot about the COP in the following months and weeks, and now in March 2022. Not so much. Do you have any reflection
3: on that? I think, especially within the UK, there was a big push sort of pre-COP, the months leading up to it, because it was the UK presidency. So it was always going to be a major point in the year for for the UK. So there was never going to be a lot of promotion and a lot of things in the media. Since then, yeah, I think I've definitely noticed a reduction in the mainstream media. But I think within the... UNFCCC and the IPCC, I think there's definitely been still talks. And of course, they're ramping up to COP27 in Egypt later this year. And there are definitely still organizations and things going on to focus on what are we actually going to be talking about in COP27? How can we prepare for it? How can we sort of start measuring some of the pledges um, that were outlined in the Glasgow pact and make sure that they're actually continuing as Richard said, this push to working together, this push to 2030 means that, you know, we really don't have a lot of time. And so I think the the time in between the cops, there's a lot of going on in the background, should we say, but Not so much mainstream. And I think that's partly kind of inevitable, just, you know, the media, when something more interesting comes along, then they start focusing on that a little bit more. But specifically kind of within the UK, we've just had the climate strikes, for example, actually, they were internationally the Fridays for Future climate strikes that happened, I think it was just last week. We've had lots of local authorities within the UK are still pushing their public strategy reports and things like that. So there are are things going on, but I think they're much more low key and they've just not been pushed um, in the media as much in terms of the actual negotiations. I think Richard alluded to this before, kind of like they talk about a tale of two cops in terms of the negotiation side and the more protest and activist side. And I think probably the activist side is a bit more vocal in that time in between, whereas the negotiations and the, the policies and the change going on is a bit more hidden, but it nonetheless is, is still going on.
2: I think Nicole's put it very well. Um, yes, it was the UK presidency within a context where the government is trying to promote global Britain post Brexit. Within that, COP26 fell into this idea yeah, very clearly that the government had a very good team and wanted to make much of it with regard to its own understanding of itself as global. So, leadership from government around this was very important to allow it in many ways to be so clearly upfront in the new cycle but as nicole has said there's a new cycle from my understanding from colleagues who've been to many cops it always happens this way uh, you know there's a swing of interest and then a swing away and i think people involved in climate action just deal with that cycle uh, and just continue to do what is necessary what i think is important i think nicole has alluded to it is we are in a very important decade with regard to net zero 2050. The condition is 45% reductions, as we both said, for 2030. The importance of that has to remain upfront in the news. And there, I think there is a problem. We need to maintain the importance of it up front, And given the way the news cycle is, I, I wonder whether we're gonna be able to, it does seem to me, it's also the responsibility of government I am going to focus on the state for this one. I think it's really up to government to make sure that it remains up front in the news. And I think pressure on government and, you know, whatever part of government that we can put pressure on and whatever part of parliament we can put pressure on, be it simply pressure on our local MPs, to maintain it as important that the 2030 horizon is critical that is what needs to be done so yes it is part of a new cycle
0: one thing that the media did pick up on during the cop26 was an analogy drawn by Boris Johnson between irregular migration resulting from climate change and the fall of the western roman empire what i wanted to ask was did we see at cop26 the emergence of future securitisation discourses around climate change, the way that climate change might be constructed as a security threat in the future, including discourses which represent irregular migration rather than the actual suffering caused by climate change or climate change itself. As the premier security threat.
2: Well, the securitization of climate. I mean, it's always there because the securitization of climate means that climate is now a national security issue. So, just in the very nature of government delegates being there, it's there. They, they, they are managing risk. So, if they're working with the science with regard to that risk, securitization just seems to me a baseline of any negotiations going on now with regard to protecting peoples from climate violence. Too either not being able to or being able to show solidarity around protecting other states from climate violence where they are more vulnerable to that violence. So I I think that underpins intergovernmental processes now per se. I think there may have been more open discussion about it, however, within the green zone. I I don't know because I wasn't in the green zone and, and Nicole might be able to answer that in a second. I think that's what, you know, the securitization of climate or climate security was not an overt theme of COP26. But as I say, it underpins all the negotiations, all the conversations from the very beginning, because we know that it is a threat multiplier.
3: I agree with Richard. It wasn't one of the clear, explicit themes, shall we say, that was going on. Each day, generally, of COP was organized around a particular Theme So finance, transport, energy, whatever it may be. So security wasn't really explicit, but it did underpin everything. They were different events going on in the green zone. And I think some of them, there were a few displays of kind of climate delay discourses in that way. So particularly like redirecting responsibility to some of the smaller states or to individuals, a lot of kind of what about you know, if we do this, then how will that impact our own sort of financial interests, our own security interests? How will that put us kind of behind the trend in, in some sort of way in comparison to other states who aren't, in their view, sacrificing? their productivity, their GDP, their growth, because they're using conventional energy production methods, for example. So I think in that way, there was a little bit of an undercurrent of nervousness because you're going against the status quo and how that's going to actually affect your country and your people. So there was a little bit of that within the green zone in some of the events that I noticed. And some countries more than others will, I think, see climate action as reducing their own freedoms and their ability to progress so I think there can be a bit of reluctance from that angle which would lean into a little bit of how they view their own kind of security within their within their states but I think there were also quite a few instances of the global south and their issue with financing and how they in themselves felt that they were almost between a rock and a hard place, and that they weren't able to progress and protect their own citizens, because they're being disproportionately affected by adverse weather, caused by the climate crisis. And of course, this would initiate a lot more migration, and how they are already being seen how refugees are already being treated within um, the West and the kind of knock on effects that that would have. I think that was very much prevalent, especially within the fringe events. I didn't see it or notice it too much within the blue zone and the green zone explicitly. It was much more in terms of finance and making sure finance is available to those in the grassroots organizations. But in the fringe events, there was definitely this undercurrent of, okay, yes, but, you know, refugees are already Treated quite badly, especially if they're coming from certain countries. I think we've seen evidence of that in the last few weeks, unfortunately. And it was how they are being perceived and who's going to help them. You know, people don't want to have to migrate because of, of climate effects, but they have no choice. And I think this issue of the finance not being available or being pledged, but then not being upholded, is causing some. Frustrations and fear, I think, in, in a lot of people from countries in the global South.
2: It's very interesting what Nicole was saying from what she was experiencing in the green zone. What I would say, and again, I'm not condoning, I'm just saying where things are standing and where action is beginning to sort of accelerate and where we need to push that further. So I'm not condoning government or state action. What I was very aware of in the blue zone and also with regard to the, old, you know, the final Glasgow Climate Pact, was that you know, adaptation came before mitigation in, in the final pact. Very interesting. Uh, it was seen as a priority now. You know, we can do this amount of mitigation. We know that. We know what it requires. And it does require a great deal, as Nicole has been insisting, both in terms of pledges being ratcheted up and in terms of pledges being implemented through comprehensive policies. But adaptation was seen of in some sense as more important with regard to the climate realities that are now and that are obviously increasingly imminent. And there, there was a sense that the South has been saying for some time, the developing countries in the South, just to to use those those denominations, that finance must be equally distributed to adaptation as to mitigation, that that must become the financial norm. And, you know, now, There's clear understanding that will be the case, that that will be the case as a direction of travel, whether, again, it's implemented or not. And that's where we get back to the mistrust that the developed countries can't even meet a a pledge of 100 billion per annum from 2009. So the mistrust is still there. But the fact that there is focus now on adaptation means necessarily that the developed countries are seeing precisely what the outcomes are for themselves if they do not help the most vulnerable countries. And that includes quite clearly massive climate migration. As Nicole put it very well, it's not being said explicitly. Yeah, It's all being put in terms of the language of risk assessment. But underneath it all, there's a very clear understanding that we have to look at this in holistic terms.
0: When people talk about the potential risks of climate migration uh, and irregular migration as a result of climate change, people often talk uh, in terms of migration across borders. I was just wondering if there's also a potential risk in terms of internally displaced persons as a result of climate change, people being forced to move within borders as well, and whether that's perhaps under-discussed?
2: I don't know whether it's under-discussed. I do know that quite clearly internally displaced people, so IDPs, with regard to climate migration, I mean, it's obviously a focus for many African countries. It's there in the conversation. I think we will hear more of it, particularly with regard to food security, uh, given what's been happening in the last few months, with regard to Africa you know, and you know, the wheat basket and it, it being now undermined from Ukraine. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more when Africa carries the leadership of COP and even then further when it goes to the Middle East. I think the voices around this are, are going to be heard more and the issues will be tabled more as part of the agenda. That is my expectation.
3: I think I think you're completely right, Richard. I think, yes, yeah, specifically with African countries. Again, in the green zone, there were quite a few events that did sort of highlight that more internal migration—people having to move from traditionally rural communities into the cities—and the pressure that was putting on the cities as well, in terms of housing, in terms of food, in terms of you know everything that, that would bring along with you know thousands of people migrating. There was a bit of concern, especially in the events that I went to in terms of what that would do to the cultural intricacies of the different countries, you know, especially communities that have been rural farming communities for hundreds of years, and now having to reskill and change their ways of living. And I think that there was much more of a concern on the social and the cultural aspects of that in the specific events that I went to in the green zone, at least. But yes, I think it's definitely an issue that, that a lot of people are aware of. But again, is really affecting certain countries more than others, I think, as is kind of the, the theme <laughs> along this the, the whole climate crisis to be honest.
0: Thank you I was gonna move on to asking specifically about whether you felt we did see the emergence of a discourse which framed countries and the global south as almost culprits in terms of climate change and an attempt to kind of shift the burden towards the global south from the global north but I think you've discussed that reasonably comprehensively already I just don't know if there's anything you would like to add on that?
2: Yeah, I think well to go back to, to Nicole's point, climate realities are highly differentiated and hierarchized within the power structures of the world as a whole. And therefore it's very important that the United Nations Framework Convention norm of common but differentiated responsibilities holds. Now we're no longer an appendix, yeah, you know, one sort of developing countries dichotomy, because I think for the last 20 years, developed countries have said more and more that countries like China and India need to meet their mitigation and adaptation responsibilities to a greater and greater extent, given their development. I think that's been heard probably more by China than by India, all the while those countries still representing and being large voices within what we call the global south. So I do think differentiated responsibilities is still agreed upon. Again, as we're both insisting, we have to see the implementation of the pledges made before we can say, yes, common the differentiated responsibilities are being met. And this is why, as Nicole and I, I think, have both stressed, coming at it slightly differently, but where I think we're both absolutely in agreement, the next eight to 10 years is critical. We will see in the next eight to 10 years, whether common but differentiated responsibilities has been met. So I think we are there. We know the discursive landscape. We know basically the areas of policy that need to be carried out. And we know who the actors are that need to carry out those policies. What we've now got to uh, simply do is, is put increasing pressure on those agents for that climate action to be undertaken. I
1: had a question on can we actually decolonize climate security policy and studies reflecting on the COP26 and your experience there?
2: I, I think the critical issue here with regard to decolonization, I mean, for me, climate realities, they're already wrapped up in the whole colonial history. I mean, we know that. And it's a very deep history. And climate actually is a catalyst for our understanding of just how deep these legacies are and how In a strategic and measured and comprehensive way, developed and developing countries need to work together to be able to answer the climate realities coming out of a whole period of history, uh, which comes under the, the notion of modernity, which has its good sides and its bad sides. So the question, I think, of decolonizing climate security is one of meeting all the expectations around adaptation. And meeting it in a way whereby, with climate, not necessarily with other things, in a highly interdependent world that we're in, and where all those colonial legacies are part of, and make that interdependence always a political conflict, as well as a policy solution. Coordination between developed and developing countries is going to be absolutely critical. And this is why I think COP is so important.
3: Thank you. Nicole? I agree completely with Richard. We can't remove... The colonial history from what's going on at the moment it's not possible but I think the fact that you know as Richard mentioned before adaptation and loss and damage were so important in this year's COP and I think they will be in future COPs as well I don't think it's the point now that we can go back specifically loss and damage and climate reparations the fact that that is now on the agenda and is so important and it's been given their own sort of days, you know, the theme has been given its own uh, day during COP. I think that provides a lot more discussion, provides a lot more opportunity for those in the global South to really not only state their case, because that's what they've been doing for years now, but for countries in the global North to be held accountable. And I think that's the main issue. I know I keep coming back to this, but I think it's the accountability and actually adhering to the pledges that they've made. But I think we've made a really important step in this COP and actually putting them on the the agenda to the point where there's no way we can go back. And I think even movements like talking about ecocide law and getting that within the ICC identified as one of the sort of, along with genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes, I think that big legislative changes like that will really help in this kind of decolonization process because it will put into to law what is actually required to replenish the ecological structures, the financial structures, societal structures that have been destroyed through the climate crisis within those global South countries, a lot of whom have also been colonies in the past of countries in the global North. So I think it's all intrinsically linked, but I think we're definitely going in the right direction. But again, we have to wait and see how how that's actually going to translate it into meaningful change. But I'm hopeful.
1: Actually, reflecting on what you just said, we had a question on how to reconcile working with countries on climate change with pushing back against human rights abuses. So,
3: for instance, with China and the Uyghurs or Russia and Ukraine. I think in terms of where my research kind of intersects with this a bit more is the framing of climate action and and the climate crisis in different countries, I think, have been very stark. I think, for example, in countries like China, the activists are being portrayed more as against the government rather than against climate change and kind of ends up turning the public attitudes against these activists and, and what they represent and kind of delegitimizes their message a bit more and in turn delegitimizing the whole climate change and the climate crisis and what needs to be done and the sort of insistence that it's done now rather than than waiting And I think it also perpetuates some of these climate delay discourses in terms of sort of that individualism and the whataboutism and kind of saying, oh, well, then if we restrict our production, for example, then another country is just going to come in and take our place. You know, we're going to be at a disadvantage. Whereas conversely, other countries, for example, Belgium, the way that they treat their activists and people speaking out about the climate is the government and the media actually gave them legitimacy the and involves them in decision making. So I think whatever the government is doing within these different countries really changes the public's perception and how they react towards, and in this case, I'm using activists, but it could be anybody, any organization that is Pushing forward meaningful change and, and calling for meaningful change, or even putting pressure on governments to put in policies that will, will that will encourage change and of course, there are different reasons for why countries like China versus Belgium are the way they are and how they treat activism and the media and things like that. But I think it does make a massive difference within these different countries and how the, the public perceive how important. The climate crisis is and how important their particular role and how important they are in influencing what the government can do. I think it all, you know, a lot of these things stem from sort of the ground up and public pressure that will force governments and states to actually make that change. But I think, you know, things like the media really do have a big influence on how that's seen and, and how the public can actually act and in turn what governments are forced or not forced to do.
2: I mean, climate diplomacy. Uh, which is within the intergovernmental process that we, we are here focusing on, I mean climate diplomacy must always disaggregate issues and isolate climate, so that one saw even during the cop that the u s and China came to an agreement which was important in in getting a certain momentum going in the second week at the same time as there basically being you know a a, a sort of uh, a war of words going on between the uh, Biden administration and, and the Xi Jinping regime and the Communist Party as a whole, which we know that has very clear effects on certain kinds of policies. Uh, that said, they could nevertheless come to an agreement, uh, which has been worked on for the last two, two to five years, in fact. And that agreement can place them in leadership positions with regard to the developed and the developing world. And they're they're working together around climate and particularly around the ratcheting up of, of pledges that work together on methane reductions. There are several issues within that agreement. It shows that you know, despite the sort of democracy, autocracy, kind of ideological, discursive tension that we're all in at the moment, and which is obviously being intensified by, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, even if lines are being drawn there to the point, let us be very clear, where Biden can call Putin a war criminal. So the the, the lines are very clear. They're not red lines, but they're very clear lines. That said, climate has been able to be disaggregated from that and and considered separately, certainly between the US and China. Now, US and Russia, that is another issue. The EU and Russia, that is another issue. And obviously, Russia is one, uh, as with Saudi Arabia. They are top emitters. And I think there we, we get to the whole question of, right, what is the politics of climate change going to be in relation to both developed and developing countries weaning themselves off fossil fuels and decarbonizing and moving to uh, clean energy economies? And I think you know that is a very interesting issue here, where dependence on oil and gas has fed a war machine. It seems a pretty incompetent war machine at the moment, but it is a very big war machine that is creating enormous casualties uh, and committing certainly war crimes. There's this sense that we all have both publicly, and this meets partly what Nicole was saying, but also on the part of governments, and here the EU, I think has been very strong. Europe is highly dependent on Russian oil and gas. It wants to get to 40% re- renewables. And to do that, it's got to find new energy sources, uh, and there th- this whole question is: can one keep coordination and cooperation going among the major actors of which China, of which Saudi Arabia, at the same time as these kinds of conflicts are intensifying? Can climate diplomacy, as I stated at the beginning, which is disaggregation of the climate issue from other issues, can dip- climate diplomacy go on working or not at this moment? In that sense, this is a very, very interesting moment, and of course, it falls again within to repeat nicole's terms at the beginning the next eight to ten years, this crucial decade and there you know I think a lot of work is being done to try and put together independence from oil and gas together with resituating Europe with regard to russia clearly the u s isn't in there because it's it's energy independent. I think this is a huge issue of climate diplomacy which we will have to look at you know as we're going up to cop 27 and obviously in the years beyond and it's vital in relation to this critical decade the two things are both parallel and one and the same thing the ability in other words to negotiate long-term clean energy economies and societies at the same time with short-term needs on energy supply which is predominantly fossil fuels how is that going to be negotiated at the same time as keeping climate diplomacy active with countries where one is in major disagreement about how they run their societies. All huge political issues and issues of diplomacy.
0: So to build on that, I wanted to ask, actually, is there a conflict between climate security and other forms of security? So during the course of COP26 and are emerging concerns about energy security, we saw the Biden administration asking the United Arab Emirates to increase oil production. We've seen violent protests in both France with the Gilets Jaunes movement, but also in Kazakhstan about rising oil prices. And obviously now we've seen in the conflict in Ukraine and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, concerns around the supply of oil and gas, particularly to Europe and then how that potentially compels countries to search for energy security elsewhere and so what I wanted to ask is how much is there a conflict between climate security and other forms of security like energy security, domestic political security, national security and to what extent do those conflicts potentially impede meaningful climate action?
2: yeah I mean, they are huge I mean in the language, in the policy language, they are huge trade-offs, clearly, and, and we're living it right at the moment uh, between climate security and energy security. And uh, I mean, I suppose you know political wisdom is the ability to make them the same security, uh, which ultimately is transition to clean energy. Can one accelerate that transition so that the more there is climate security? And let's be clear, climate security is also about solidarity with the South. And I think Nicole and I have made that very clear from the beginning. So climate security is not just a, in, in international relations terms, a realist act. It is also an ethical act now. The, the two cannot be distinguished. Uh, I think that's very important to understand just what climate security means. Can one square climate security with energy security? That is now the political challenge of the next few years and of the decade as a whole and it does mean accelerating the transition to clean energy i think you know the market will, will come up with some quite surprising innovation here you know the, the, the pricing of renewables has come right down it's obviously been the way in which they have been able to be mainstream much more and for ratcheting up of pledges to be possible it's because of the way in which solar wind uh hydrogen fuels All of that has come in and been more and more appropriately priced so that it's competitive uh, with oil and gas. Now that, obviously, it's a secular trend. It will take its time. What the Russian invasion of Ukraine has done is accelerate this whole process of decision making. And this is, again, where I just think we all need to put as much pressure as possible on our respective governments. So to answer you briefly now, but there are necessary trade-offs. The political challenge is to make energy and climate security one. And we'll see that that whether that is done, it could be done in a differentiated way across the globe with very different realities and different powers and different finance structures and inequalities, we all know. Can we do it to a greater than a lesser extent? I believe very strongly that is the politics of energy for the next uh, 10 years.
0: Thank you very much. Nicole, I don't know if you wanted to uh, add anything.
3: Yeah, I think definitely interesting to see, like you mentioned, Biden asking the UAE to increase their oil production. But I think it's also really important that this transition away from fossil fuels doesn't end up like the transition away from coal, for example, that we had in the UK, where you had skilled people left behind. And I think that is something that... Even sort of going away from the global south, global north distinction at the moment, I think it doesn't matter sort of where you are. If, if you have a particular area of your working population with a particular skill set, I think it's really important to make sure that any new transition to clean energy has them in mind. And it is, and it, we talk about this just transition, making sure that you know everyone is brought along and people aren't unnecessarily kind of abandoned. And I think a lot of people, the working people are somehow rightly concerned, I think, especially people working oil rigs, for example, and, and in these kind of industries, I think rightly concerned, because they've probably seen in the past where there's been a big transition. And the workers haven't been upskilled, they haven't been reskilled, they haven't been brought along and almost left behind. And it's and it's created this domino effect of really negatively affecting the communities that they live in and the economies of those towns. So I think it's their concerns in my eyes are justified. And I think it's again up to governments to make sure that they're providing not only the the resources available, but actually the confidence, insulin confidence in the people that, you know, it won't be like last time. We're going to bring everybody along, you know, we're we're creating new technologies, but we need people to actually help us create those technologies to understand how we can use those transferable skills from people who work in oil wigs to now people who work in, I don't know, creating wind turbines or whatever it may be, you know, but I think recognizing and validating the concerns of, of working people who are in those industries is really important and putting pressure on the government to actually put a clear plan of how they're going to do that. Because, you know, especially within the UK, it's not been done very well, shall we say beforehand, and, you know, it still have effects now. And people, you know, they don't want a repeat of that. And I think that's completely fair. So I think that's also a really vital area to getting everybody on board with this transition, because this is going to be the new Say as co, I mean, we don't really have a choice at this point, but you can either bring people along willingly and happily or you can drag them. And I think it's much easier if we can bring them along willingly. But to do that, you need to instill some confidence in them and make true on certain promises. Um, and unfortunately, only the government can do that. So keep putting pressure on them.
2: I think, Nicole, it's a, it's a very interesting way of looking at your question. I, I think the, the ways we have done has two different but very mutually related ways of looking at at what you asked around uh, climate security, energy security. And I think what, and I just, I want to emphasise again what Nicole has said, because I think it's so important, is that what is therefore needed is comprehensive policies at this point. They've got to be cross-ministerial and coordinated. That is a huge ask of any government. And that, you know, in those terms, by putting in... the just transition point that Nicole is making. On the one hand, we we know the the, the political challenge of this transition in terms of trade-offs and trying to make it one strategy, uh, one security, as I was saying, together with Nicole's point about, right, well, you've got to take a whole lot of people and their communities with you and not leave them behind if this is going to work and if it's going to work in terms of the policies as a whole. It does just show how much, how important government is going to be in these coming years and how responsible and measured and how coordinated government policy is going to need to be.
0: And I think you're right to pull out the complementary nature of those points looking at both domestic and then the geopolitical level at the same time. We wanted to ask some questions about your research and the impact that COP26 might have had on your specific research.
1: Yeah, we would like to ask you, how do your experiences at COP relate to your own research? And do you have any recommendation, either in terms of policy or the future direction of research following this COP26?
3: Yeah, thanks, Rain. Yeah, COP was... Hugely influential on the research. We had just started, I'm working with uh, Dr. Victoria Spazer, who's just won a Future Leaders uh, Fellowship grant from the UKRI. And that had just started in October. We're looking at the public COP debates and the social movements, for example, Fridays for Future or school strikes and Extinction Rebellion, which I think is a lot more popular within the UK, and how the framing of the climate crisis and climate action is changing over the years. So we're actually kind of looking at COP26 back to COP20 even in 2014. And we'll be looking at COP27 as well, just to understand how the new framing of sort of existential crisis and the intergenerational justice, Indigenous rights, human rights, ecocide, these kind of frames of, of the climate movements are actually permeating into policy and into the public debate. And we're using generally computational methods for that, but also kind of interviews with the different MPs on both sides of the discussion. I think that's important as well, even if you don't sometimes agree with them. You know, like we, we've mentioned throughout this whole podcast, it's really important to get all of the different components within government. And that includes people who you have differing views with to try and understand where they're coming from, why they may have certain, I wouldn't say denial, but definitely delay discourses and kind of what's encouraging them and how we can actually sort of start to realistically meet these 2030 and and eventually 2050 targets, but how we can bring the public along with that as well. So that's our focus at the moment. Really, really interesting.
2: Hmm. I'm very envious of Nicole and it sounds fascinating what what she's doing with Victoria Spreysen. As head of school, I don't have an enormous time, amount of time for research, so I have to be very, very focused. But what I've been working on, really, for a few years, and where uh, I publish, is around the responsibility of the state towards the climate crisis. And what that responsibility means, and it's not specific to the developed world, but I can understand it can be perceived as such, and it, and, and I think my focus needs to grow but where I've been concerned with climate leadership, and obviously there are great climate leaders in the developing world, in many ways much more effective and carrying many more people to go back to Nicole's point than our leadership in, in, in the north of the world. But my concern is that if we are going to meet the time and the scale of the challenge between now and 2030, between 2030 and 2050, we need climate leadership. We need example, because The mechanism of the Paris Agreement of 2015 is nationally determined contributions because an international legal treaty did not work. There was no post-Kyoto agreement. There was no way that international law could bring nation states together in such a way that they would coordinate global collective action. That was the failure of the post-Kyoto agreement. And the expectations were too high. We're still too much in a state system for us to be able to transcend that system that transcendence is much further down the line. I think some people are very much interested in global governance thought and global governance as being post-national. So national responsibilities towards a global public good, like climate security and like prevention of climate violence, has to be led by nation states. That is what the Paris Agreement certified. And that is where 190 countries signed on. Obviously, again, the pledges and the policies stand way far from what is needed yet. And it is a constant process of increasing ambition and climate action. But within that, leaders are critical. I spoke earlier about the United States and China. The tragedy of Brazil at the moment is that they've lost that climate leadership. As someone like Marcus Randolph works on very well within Polis. There's obviously very strong leadership now within Africa, and there is leadership among climate activists, and particularly, as Nicole referred to earlier, the climate strikes have been crucial. People like Rosa Tumbo have been absolutely critical. The leadership I'm interested in is the leadership where comprehensive policy is put in place, and there is only one instance, one political unit that can do that, and that is the state. It has the monopoly of violence. Uh, to talk about it in the Iberian sociological terms, it has the notary of Violence to put in place across a particular territory and in coordination with other territories, given its sovereign powers, the ability for comprehensive policies. And that is what we now need to be able to meet the horizons of 2030 and 2050. So my focus is on that climate leadership among various forms of climate leadership. And to go back to Nicole's point and to return to an earlier point, what is critical is that these various forms of action and leadership come together more and more. And that is the ultimate climate leadership, if you like, the meta-climate leadership that is required. And we as academics have a role here. We have a responsibility. We can promote that. And that is what I'm concerned with.
1: Thank you. Sounds fascinating.
2: Thank
0: you so much. And um, the last question we wanted to ask following on from that, just to make sure that people are able to follow your research, is where is the best place for anyone listening to this podcast to find your work and to follow uh, the research that you're undertaking?
3: Oh, Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, I guess the University of Leeds Politics International. Studies uh, department website. Most things are listed on there. The Center for Democratic Engagement, which is a uh, center of research within Polis as well. And recently, Victoria and I have done a literature festival kind of city seminars session where we did a podcast talking about our research more on the social side.
2: I would say equally, you know, my staff page on the POLIS website, and also, you know, for both of us and for many others, also look at the Priestley Centre website. Its research pages are excellent, and you know, there's a lot of interdisciplinary work going on within Leeds, uh, with us as as one of of many set of researchers. So I would say both the POLIS website and also please look at the Priestley Centre research website.
0: That was great. We would like to thank you both for taking part in this debut episode and thank all of you who are listening to our podcast, especially those that sent in questions. We would also like to thank our assistant producer, Irene Groenland. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all major podcast apps to get future episodes directly into your feed and take a look at the Centre for Global Security Challenges and the Priestley International Centre for Climate websites find further cutting-edge research on today's topic. If you enjoyed this episode, then please remember to leave us a rating and review.
1: Stay tuned, our next episode will be coming out next month and we will be looking at the future of terrorism research with Dr Gordon Club and Mr Muhammad Didarul Islam. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Insecure, a security podcast. But until then, stay safe, stay secure. Bye for now. It was Harry and Marine for the CGSC podcast.
0: Insecure.
1: A security podcast.